Welcome to the Practice Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Battles, a strength and conditioning coach and the founder of Pregnancy and Postpartum Athleticism. The Practice Brave Podcast brings you the relatable, trustworthy, and transparent health and fitness information you're looking for when it comes to coaching, being coached, and transitioning through the variables of motherhood and womanhood. If you're a pregnant or postpartum athlete or a coach working with this population, this show is specifically designed for you. All right, let's get started. Welcome back to the Practice Brave Podcast. Today, I am here with my friend, Jasmine Shea. You might know her on Instagram as Jazzy Things. And today, we're going to be talking about her fertility journey. She's currently a pregnant athlete. And we are really excited to have a personal conversation about what her fertility process has been like. So, Jazzy, thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to really just talk about this blend we have of pregnancy plus athletics plus fertility journey. That's essentially a summary of my current life. So I'm happy to be here. Well, perfect. So give us a little background info. Tell us about yourself, what you do, what your athletic history or interest is, all of that good stuff. Yeah, so currently I am a soon-to-be mom, and in a business sense, I'm also an entrepreneur. I own an app that provides dinner recipes, and I also do business coaching for digital entrepreneurs as well. And my journey through life and business and athletics, I would say really started probably about maybe eight years ago is when I started on my personal fitness journey, if you will, especially on Instagram, where Instagram really started the whole fitness thing, eating thing. So that's when I dove in. I did play sports in high school. I played um, soccer, basketball, and track, but I wasn't any kind of superstar, but had always been around athletics. So around the start of my journey, when I started to just eat healthier and get more active, and I was doing like circuit classes at the gym, I decided to pursue bodybuilding. And so that was really the start of my journey and learning about what the heck are macronutrients and how am I feeling my body and doing actually programmed workouts. So I ended up doing, I think, five bodybuilding competitions. Um, I started in figure and then took a couple years off and then came back and did bikini. And then just to give a quick overview of my, my journey, I then went to CrossFit and wanted to get better at Olympic weightlifting. So then I went to Olympic weightlifting. Actually, rewind, I started powerlifting. And my powerlifting gym was connected to a CrossFit gym. So I did a few meets of powerlifting. And then I started CrossFit. And then I tried to Olympic weightlift. That, that was not the best story for me. I, I'm a little awkward and tall and that wasn't my favorite. So went back to just doing CrossFit and just learning. And then I got into jujitsu. So that was during the time that we were trying to conceive. So that was just a little over a year ago that I got really into jujitsu training six, seven times a week trying to do CrossFit at the same time, but then committed solely to jujitsu and was taking some private lessons in addition to the classes. So got really into that. And then my husband and I had been trying for about a year, trying to get pregnant and have a baby. And then we learned that we needed to go through IVF and had the opportunity to go through IVF. So we started that process in around June of 2020. 
I stopped doing jujitsu and anything really during that process and just during the surgery and egg retrieval and such. And then I got pregnant and it was successful. And so now to this day, to summarize all of this, I am doing CrossFit workouts every now and then. Jiu-jitsu and pregnancy aren't super synergistic. So just staying active, but that's the uh, long-winded summary of my evolution of my, my background is actually human resources and where I started, but quit that and now own my own business, but evolution of trying and dabbling in a lot of things and not being exceptional at one certain thing, but just loving variety and having fun and learning um, and just submersing myself in things and getting really passionate about them and then kind of learning the next thing. So that's the story of my journey. No, I love it. And it's, it's so fun to be able to connect like your personal process to what you're able to do creatively in business or otherwise. And I really appreciate you sharing so openly on Instagram recently, or I guess over the past few months anyway, about your fertility journey and about your pregnancy. What was the most challenging part of your fertility process, that starting out phase? Yeah. So it's all the unknowns because we had tried for about a year prior to me sharing. There were different pieces that were difficult when I had opened up. And I would say one of those is it's this weird dichotomy where it's difficult that people aren't very aware or we don't openly talk about fertility journeys so that when I am sharing, there's uh, misinformation, there's assumptions, and it's all from a good place typically, but that was hard. So when I started sharing, just sharing the most vulnerable thing in my life and then people not being aware of this. So on one hand, it's almost made me want to retreat. But on the other hand, I'm like, we have to change this. We have to change how people view this. Because even if you are trying to conceive for a month, that's still one month of a roller coaster of emotions. And so I say that because if you have a desire to be a mother or a parent in some capacity, you're on this journey. You're on a TTC journey, regardless of if you pursued IVF like we did, or if you tried for six months or three months or three years, whatever that may look like, we are all on this journey if that desire is there. So that was hard once I started sharing. Prior to that, I would say what was difficult was just the unknowns, the unknowns of my body, even not even knowing what or when the heck I ovulated until I was essentially forced to learn it and forced, I say forced, other things weren't working. So it's like, okay, so what do I do? I don't know. So it was confusing and discouraging and isolating as well. And so I would say that was difficult before we really got answers was just trying to navigate it all. And there's a lot of learnings and lessons in that, but navigating it was was difficult because everyone is so unique and it's just not talked about a lot. Absolutely. And I think that, I, I don't know, at least for me growing up, I just I basically assumed like, well, <laughs> if you have sex and you're trying <laughs> to have a baby, then your chances of getting pregnant are very, very high. And it's yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's actually a little bit more of a science to this, um, <laughs> getting pregnant and timing. And, you know, for a lot of people, many things have to align in order to make that happen. And I can speak for myself when I was trying to get pregnant with Cade, 
I just did not know a whole lot about my body or about ovulation Mm -hmm. or about that process. I literally just assumed like, if we're going to start trying to have a baby, well, it's going to happen. And it took us probably about four months. So I, I don't really want to say that like, you know, we didn't go through a whole super emotional process with that, but it is, I think it's really hard for people to know what to expect and to be in that limbo and to feel super frustrated or the anxiety of, can I get pregnant? What should I do? When do I start considering fertility treatment? Like that process. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what that part was for you was going from, okay, we're trying something. It's not really working. What made you decide to start fertility treatment? Yeah. So I think I probably Googled like, when do we see fertility treatment? And I saw that typically if you're under a certain age, I think if you're under 35, then they will encourage you to try for at least a year before they consider fertility treatments because six months, I don't know if this has changed, but six months is about average. So if someone has been trying for six months, it Of course, it feels so heavy and discouraging at the same time. It is just naturally going to take some time. So I think I must have read somewhere that at a year is when they will consider us and actually move forward versus, okay, just time your intercourse better or take these medications to stimulate ovulation. But for me, it was unique because I ovulate so regularly and there were no signs of anything being an indicator of pursuing treatment. Um, I don't have PCOS. And so those aren't bad things. I just didn't have something that was glaring. So it really was just as simple as us. We had tried for a year and weren't pregnant. I tracked my ovulation, ovulated regularly. I tracked for, for almost the entire year and even took months of not tracking. That's what people say. Just don't think about it. For one, that doesn't work. (laughs) But for two... Um, we just did all the things for an entire year. And then we scheduled a couple interviews with some doctors. And from both of them, our recommendation was IVF, which was unique to us because there are other interventions that can be possible. But that's what helped us make the decision was just wasn't working. <laughs> right. Well, I'm so glad that you're sharing this so openly and honestly. So I know you, you've kind of alluded to this. What are some things not to say to somebody who mm. is trying to get pregnant or in their fertility process. I think that's really helpful. Cause like you said, maybe it's well-intentioned, but man, it doesn't always fall well. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, that's what, like I said, is, or was, and is one of the most difficult pieces of this journey. And I do want to plug actually my good friend and I, who experienced secondary infertility, she got pregnant instantly from her first from her first daughter and then experienced secondary infertility, we actually started a podcast called TTC Society. And we have an episode about what not to say and maybe what to say instead. And I only plug that because it is such a big piece. And from the outside in, we can think, oh, I'm just helping or I want to get this off my chest. But you know, what I've noticed is, and I do this too in other situations is a lot of times when we want to give advice, it's very self-serving. Like I want to be that person that gave advice or I am the beholder of this, this key or this trick. So I must share it. Right. We don't really take a moment to think, well, what's the intention of this? How are they going to receive? It's just so right. self-serving. So to answer your question, the whole just relax <laughs> is one of the most disheartening and 
hurtful things that I heard because we did have answers as to why we pursued IVF and it had nothing to do with relaxing. And I didn't just want to blatantly tell people, this is why we're pursuing it. I promise relaxing won't help because nobody, I don't, we don't owe anyone those explanations. So, you know, there's the stories of, well, my cousin did this and then this worked for her. So saying things like that, just relax but also sharing stories of what worked for someone else. It sounds so well-intentioned, but it is so hard to hear that because in the midst of a fertility journey, and then you hear someone say, well, my cousin did this because you want to be the person. Maybe that advice worked. It almost made me feel like it invalidated the research and the diligence I and my partner were putting into pursuing this, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, like you guys, that's really great for them. And if it was that simple, we wouldn't be doing this or be in this spot. Right. So I'm still a little sensitive to it, even as I'm, I'm sharing with you and just to give others that permission to be sensitive about it. Like it's not even being sensitive. That's just my interpretation, but to, be offended. It's okay if you are offended when someone says something, because for me, it was so many new emotions. I didn't know how to process it. And I just reminded myself, like, I feel offended and I'm sure it's something within me that's making that triggering, but that's okay. So let me assess why I'm feeling triggered and figure out what I can change, what, how I can receive it differently. But just all of those feelings were so valid. So to talk about the flip side of that, what not to say would be just relax or blank tried such and such. Did you try this? And what to say is nothing to do with advice. It's really that simple. Right. You just listen, ask how you can support them, um, encourage them, celebrate them. You know, my friend Kat, who I started the podcast with, she had shared with someone that she was going through IVF or no, I'm sorry, considering IVF. She went through IUI and they said, Oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, wait, but no, this is exciting. It's next steps. So, you know, just asking how you can be there for them is going to be so much more supportive than thinking we already know because yeah, just holding that space for them. So again, long-winded answer, but (laughs) yeah. You know what? I, I feel like everything you spoke to is just so emotionally intelligent and aware, both on your own processing side and uh, for other people, they're kind of just second guess, like, I guess, take a moment before they speak to really think about how that message can be interpreted when somebody's in a very vulnerable season, fertility treatment or not, pregnancy, postpartum, delivery, like all of these things are highly, highly vulnerable subjects from yeah. body image to training, to delivery mode, to conception. Like there are so many different chapters within this season of pregnancy and postpartum, I think we just have to be so much more aware of what we say, how we say it, and what what is the impact of it. Yeah. And, you know, and not that there's ever any, like, categories that we're in, like, oh, someone on a TTC journey and someone not. At the same time, there are so many experiences that I haven't experienced. And there's just this level of where I can still have empathy, but I simply do not understand. And those who have not gone through IVF or experienced a fertility journey or fertility treatments, there is just this level that you can't understand. Um, And I think that's important for us to remember is that 
that doesn't mean we can't be just as supportive, just as encouraging, no matter what that life circumstance is. Maybe it's dealing with something that has nothing to do with fertility, but I feel like the human brain wants to understand or wants to try and relate or be that person who has the answers, but sometimes we just don't and and that's okay. Oh, absolutely. It's, I'm like, I love to like fix things, you know, like there's like mm. the inner coach, you know, that yeah. <laughs> sometimes for better or worse, it comes out. And it, I think in my own growth is trying to be a much more emotionally intelligent coach is to just sit there and hold space and say like, I'm with you. Like, I don't yeah. know how I can help you. And I can't relate to all of these things. I can't, you know, the coaching I do, it's like, you know, people are like, prolapse or I have this or I have that. And there's so many different things within this season that I cannot relate to, but I can listen and empathize and try to help in the ways that I actually can help. I can make yeah. the situation better. And I think it, it's so great that you're bringing this conversation to light as it relates to fertility. Mm-hmm. So tell us what your, what your training has been like. I know for some of the athletes I've worked with, there's been a lot of typically like some hesitancy or kind of nervous about their training because, okay, they, they've gone through fertility treatments. Obviously it's a huge financial and emotional process. How do you incorporate exercise in a way that feels good? Yeah. I love that question, especially because you mentioned, you know, we longed and tried so hard for this, this pregnancy and then it happens. And then it, it did make me start to second guess, okay, what really is this, the safest route or the best route? And just again, searching for right. that, that answer almost. Um, so for me, maybe I'm an anomaly here, but I went into this really trusting my body and myself. And I say that with recognizing that I have not experienced a loss And I know for many pregnant athletes I've talked with who have experienced a loss, there's a different level of apprehension, especially in the first trimester. And so I'm not speaking from that place just to acknowledge that. So I went into this really just committed to staying active, not knowing what that would look like and just kind of surrendering almost. We went through IVF and it was invasive and weird. And I had a fairly positive experience, but then I just kind of vowed to, you know what? I I had zero control during that entire process. What might it look like if I just follow my intuition a little bit during this pregnancy and working out? So that's really what I led with. So I preface this by saying I was leading a lot with that intuition, which is so weird because I've never been pregnant before. So where's it coming from? Um, All that to say that only lasted a little while because my first trimester was so brutal. I completely underestimated it. I was so nauseous, throwing up. I could not function. My doctor encouraged me to go on walks, get outside. I could, I was like, I don't even want to do that. He's like, you'll feel better. I'm like, oh, I can't. (laughs) So first trimester, I didn't do really anything this was during COVID too. So then I was like, you know what? I want to center back to what I committed to in the beginning of this, which is trusting my body, trusting that movements I do and activity I do is for making me feel good, but also with the benefit of baby too. And so I didn't really know where to start. And I actually had purchased your program at that time 
because I could like blindly program things in my garage, but that's still, I wanted a guide and I just wanted to kind of have a little reassurance that my intuition and the decisions I was making were based on something. And then from there I could tweak, make adjustments. So purchasing the pregnancy guide was actually really pivotal for me transitioning from, Ooh, I'm pregnant to, I feel like crap to, you know what, let's do something. Let's see what we can do. Because what I would do is since it's separated by week of pregnancy, I would go to that week. I think I started feeling a little better around like 11 or 12 weeks. Right. So I would go to that week and then I would look at most all days of that week. And then I would kind of just piece together what sounded fun. Mm -hmm. But what was helpful is that I knew that they were programmed for that week. So there was general guidance that I could do those exercises. And so that helped me learn like, oh, let me do still some warm up running in the first trimester. Oh, look, let me put in some squats or some kettlebell swings. And then just that transition before I started going back to the CrossFit gym um, into second trimester. So that's what that looked like. And then I really got a good baseline of what to substitute, what to take out, what to modify. So now I'm back in the gym and the coaches are really helpful, but at the same time, it's been so wonderful for me to look at the workout and say, okay, I'm going to modify this. What's the point of me still doing this? I'm going to do this. So that's where I'm at now. Again, I stopped jujitsu during IVF treatments. I miss it a lot. Um, But now I'm just going like three to four times a week to CrossFit, sometimes two times. And I just look at the workout and take out what either I don't want to do or just don't feel comfortable doing. And it's just like you and I were talking about before this, it's been so nice to just go into the workout knowing I'm just there to move and feel good. And it's not about getting any good times or big numbers. And it's been really fun. It takes a lot, a lot of the pressure off of, off of workouts for me. So that's where I'm at right now. Absolutely. And it sounds like you've just been able to, well, and I know that you have from our conversations really take like adapt your athlete brain. I know the word that stood out to me earlier was that you said, like, you just sort of surrendered, like you surrendered mm-hmm. to what this process would be like. And I think kind of channeling that whole experience of the word surrender helps you be in tune with your body. And it helps you be aware of like, why am I doing this? And just like a lot of different reflection points for both training and just how your body feels at different times so that you can truly become the expert on your body during all seasons. This week's episode is brought to you by Iconic Protein. You can use code PRACTICEBRAVE using the link in the show notes to try it out. What I love about it is it is on the go protein. I don't have to mix anything. I don't need my protein shaker bottles. I don't need to put it in a blender. It is pre-made, ready to go. I just grab it from my fridge and out the door. I love it. I was like my 4 p.m. I'm kind of snacky feeling, but I don't want to have like a full meal. So I love having this for when I'm out the door to baseball or jujitsu or whatever with my kids. It's a great way to get in 20 grams of protein for only 140 calories. I personally really like the chocolate and greens flavor. So if this is something that sounds like it would resonate with you, you're trying to get extra protein in your diet, whether it's because you're postpartum or you're recovering from a surgery, or you just really need more protein to support the fitness that you're doing, I'd really recommend checking out 
iconic protein using the link in my show notes. And please be sure to use code PRACTICEBRAVE to get a discount. Yeah. And it's not been easy surrendering, but I think that's probably my theme. And for me, surrendering doesn't even just mean, or I mentioned my intuition. It, you know, it doesn't just mean for me, just negligently go in and just, if it feels good, do this. I feel like what my goal has been is to get a good, like a good arsenal. So I have you, I have the program. I got a referral from you actually for a pelvic floor specialist. And I went to a pregnancy chiropractor. I've been keeping my doctor up to date. So it's kind of like I have my little team where I feel comfortable and confident that are the experts. And then what I've kind of vowed to is honestly to kind of tune out the rest because Instagram is full of a lot of opinions and advice and it gets really overwhelming. But if I take where I'm focusing my information and receiving that from the credible experts and then surrendering to the rest, it's, it's been quite a, quite a journey in a beautiful way. It makes a huge difference. And I just want to congratulate you for being able to do that during your first pregnancy. It takes so many of us, a second baby or third baby, almost like something bad happening to be able to say, oh, okay, I need to do things differently, or I need to give myself that permission to adjust and to be different, let my body change, let my training change, let my mental routine and approach change, all of that. It usually takes this like thing, but it, in some ways, I think for you, you had the very early exposure of saying, my process is different than maybe what I thought it was going to be with, with having fertility treatment. And it sounds like that has carried over really positively into where you're going. Yeah, that's exactly what it was, is the reflections that I gleaned from going through IVF. And it is a tough journey. And in the midst of it, it's really hard to see the positives that can come from that. In hindsight, I do see what I've gained from that. And it's the trust, surrender, patience because of the difficult emotions. And that's one of the the biggest things I've learned is that I can be frustrated and excited. I can be sad and hopeful. So firstly, thank you for, you know, acknowledging that. Um, I will say though, like going through IVF, I remember when I very first started going through it, I was like, okay, we were planning a move. Um, We're planning to move into Colorado soon. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have this procedure on this date. And then this is going to happen. And then I'm going to get pregnant on this date. Oh my gosh, it does not work out that way. So I very quickly had a very prominent wake up call that nothing is going to go as planned. So that has definitely carried over into pregnancy where nothing is going to go as, as planned. So what can I put in place to allow me to pivot and adjust and receive those changes, maybe with a little more forgiveness for things not going as planned. So anyways, all that to say is what really helped me was to look back and think, you know, what, what did I learn from this? What can I take from this really difficult situation? What was it preparing me for? And what was the lesson underneath that, that has led me to this new path? And it's just, it's all so synergistic. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Absolutely. I feel like just the process of becoming pregnant and becoming a mother is just 
this true test from the universe of learning to control what you can, surrendering to the rest, and just becoming so adaptable. And when we resist that, when we challenge Mm -hmm. it, which is like my default mechanism for like Mm -hmm. most things, it just makes it so much harder. And I think I had such a better experience my second time around when I really focused on, you know, control the variables I can, have a great team around me, drown out all of these loud voices that distract me from what kind of experience I want to have, at least in the ways I can control, made a huge difference. Yeah. It gets exhausting to do the opposite, you know? Some may be thinking, and I know I used to think this and still do all the time. I don't have it figured out. Um, Oh, but like trusting and letting go of control, that's so difficult. (laughs) For me, when I really started to lean into that, what was more difficult was all of the noise and not being rooted in what was guiding me, whatever that may be. So um, it almost became this very thing I was resisting is the thing that allowed me to not resist. So, yeah. Thanks universe for that, huh? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So can we rewind a little bit? Can you just give us some almost like day-to-day insight on what your fertility process looked like? I think there's a lot of like people see pictures of shots you know, on the mm, internet, yeah. like they see, they see that. Can you give us just some insight on some of the, maybe the details that are, that you wish you would have had some exposure or awareness around before starting your process? Mm, yeah, of course it's all in hindsight. And <laughs> just to preface for those who've been on their own journey, I did have a good experience, if you will, through IVF. Kat and I on the TTC Society have interviewed multiple women on on fertility journeys and they've candidly shared like their process horribly changed their lives. Like it was a horrible experience. So I'm going to share from positive experience. What it entails is it's a long process. It's not just, I can't get pregnant. Let me go to the fertility doctor and then get me pregnant. So And I say that because ours was quick, but still long. So our first visit was in June. And then my first egg retrieval was in September. And then my transfer, which I can share a little bit about what these are, was in November. And the transfer is where they transferred an embryo into my uterus. And that was successful. And that's where I became pregnant. So I guess what I wish I would have known is a little bit about what I've shared, which is literally nothing's going to go as planned. It's so cliche. And if someone would have told me that in the midst of it, I've been like, stop, right? Shut up. Like I'll figure it out. I know that. Um, but looking back, I'm like, holy cow, there's just so many little pieces. So, um, the actual IVF process and to speak to your question, kind of about the day to day, primarily what people are seeing is the preparation for the egg retrieval. That's the STEM medications. So that one for me was in September and what's actually happening is this is what you want me to share. Do you want me to like talk through the process? Oh yeah. I mean, whatever you're willing to share oh. with some of that, like just the wisdom gained so far, I think is so valuable for people to know, like, what's it actually really like? What okay. am I, what am I headed yeah. into? <laughs> yes. Because it's fascinating. It really yeah, I is. Love to and, keep it real. So, and I know you. Okay, know. good. Yes. I'll share anything. You just ask away. Um, but I, I would like to share this because whether you're pursuing IVF or you got pregnant without intervention, medical intervention, um, our bodies, your body was still doing these things, which is what's wild. So a retrieval is stem medication, as they call it, we're stimulating the follicles 
are inside our ovaries. I didn't even know any of this. I mean, I didn't even know we had follicles and then the eggs are inside the follicles. So what we typically do is we have typically one follicle or egg that expands once a month and then it ovulates. So that follicle releases an egg if there happened to be an egg in there. And then that is when it goes into our fallopian tube and the sperm can meet the egg. So what we want to do with IVF is we stimulate all of the follicles. So we mature every single follicle. Sometimes people have only one or two. It really depends on your egg reserve. Um, I had, I had 31 follicles. So if you picture like little balloons, they are expanding these little tiny balloons in my ovaries. And we do that for about 12 days. And it was about four injections a day. And there are other injections stimulating. We're also suppressing ovulation because they're all mature enough. They could ovulate, but we want to tell my body, wait, not yet. Right. So anyway, I get really, really bloated and very uncomfortable because every single follicle is expanded to like 20 millimeters. And then you do what's called a trigger shot. So you have a very specific to the minute time. You do your trigger shot and that tells your body, okay, it's time to ovulate. And that's very like elementary description from a non-medical professional. Um, But then what happens is I went under anesthesia and they put a needle up my vagina through into the ovary and extracted every egg and put them in the lab. And they, from there, see how many matured. And my husband gave his sperm sample or semen sample that morning. And then they fertilize them. They manually fertilize every egg. And then you just wait. And so that's kind of speaking to your question of the day-to-day of like what's happening during retrieval. And then the waiting was the hardest thing. Like put me under anesthesia, put the needles in me. I had a great experience with that. It actually wasn't that difficult. The shots weren't painful for me, but I'm not afraid of needles. Um, for those who are, it's a much more difficult experience. So then you just wait and you wait and see how many eggs fertilized. You wait and see how many mature and make it to day five and you just wait. Right. And it was the hardest time because you can't, nothing is in your control. And so that was very difficult. And then there's this whole, I mean, there's so many other steps and details in between with testing and genetic testing and everything. But to really, really fast forward, two months later, they pick an embryo. We had the embryologist, well, actually, my husband, because we got genetic testing, we knew the sex of our embryos. And so he picked the sex and then they picked the best quality and transfer it. And that's where it was successful. So just to summarize all that, during transfer, there are more needles and those are in the butt. Again, non-medical term, (laughs) Um, but that's where my husband has the long needles and it's progesterone injections. And those start about five days prior to transfer. And then if pregnancy is confirmed successful, then you continue this for 10 weeks. So after transfer, we had 10 total weeks of those injections as well. Wow. And that's what it looks like. (laughs) How This is a personal question. So I'm going for it. Uh, how did that affect your relationship? Because that's such a like uh, intimate, yeah. overwhelming and stressful thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I just would love to know for those listening, 
how that was for you guys? I love that question and happy to speak to that because it actually very positively affected our relationship. When we initially learned we were pursuing IVF, that I wouldn't say caused strain. That was the most difficult news we've ever received prior to us recognizing, wait, this is exciting and this is full of hope and possibilities. So from that moment forward, this journey really forced us to make really big decisions together. And that has been pivotal for our marriage. I can't think of any other circumstances we would have to make these decisions, such as you have these embryos on ice. If your husband or your partner dies, who gets possession of the embryos? Like decisions like that, it's just wild. And embryos, AKA potential future babies. So that really brought us closer together on even just an emotional level. And also my husband, Mike, he so supportive. He was the shot guy. So he prepared all the shots. Some of them required mixing with saline and powder. And I did all the stims myself because it's just in my belly, but he did all the shots that were in my butt, but we just had a system and we've since been faced with other decisions. Like for example, one of our animals got really sick and two of them actually, they required daily injections. And it was very, I don't know what the universe was saying at that point. Cause it's like, here's me as a human making a baby with shots. And now we have to give daily injections for a few months to our cats. And it sounds kind of petty, but those decisions when we were faced, do we move forward with this? We're like, Oh, we know how to make decisions like this. We know what to do. Bring it on. So now as we're preparing to move or preparing for baby, we've already gone through all of that. We're like, yeah, bring it on. What's next. So for us, there were a lot of challenges that really did bring us, bring us closer together in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I love that. Yeah. So many of those hard conversations and big life experiences, I mean, it certainly can drive marriages and relationships opposite directions or bring them closer. I know that I felt I had a really uh, traumatic first birth, but mm. there was so much positive that ultimately came out of that. And one of which was like seeing my husband in a true, like he has my back, like he a hundred percent has my back and can take care of me and is here for this. And he is like seeing him become a dad and also just be so nurturing when that wasn't typically something that I saw so much out of him. It was just this dramatic growth for him that I got to witness, but then also benefit from in a marriage. So I I think we are all, like you said, all on different journeys, all have different experiences, but there are some silver linings there. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that by the way, and how that experience you saw parts of him and he probably saw parts of you that he had never experienced too, and just brought you guys closer. Um, And another plug I also started working with a therapist and that was so pivotal. I actually had something come up. Well, I'll just share what it was. Maybe trigger warning if someone has fertility treatments coming up. This was very uncommon. After my hysteroscopy, I actually had a seizure, like a grand mal seizure, they think. Mm -hmm. And that was really weird because I never in my life had had many examples or instances of where I didn't trust my body. But when I woke up and learned I was on that table, not in control whatsoever, that was really interesting. So it was after that moment, I started working with a therapist, 
which has been so instrumental for my relationship, for processing all of this. Um, so whether it's a therapist or not, I just want to say that it wasn't just this brought my husband and I closer, not just because we talk about it and I like to talk and say things out loud and communicate. I mean, it, it took work for sure. And I just see where, like you said, seeking to find that silver lining and having the support system, whatever that looks like is what really helped make that possible for me. Oh, absolutely. I love, love, love that you said that I'm a huge proponent of therapy, especially during pregnancy and postpartum where there's just, you know, if I work with a lot of athletes, athletes typically like to be in control. And then there's so many things that aren't in your control. So it is, there is so much value in being able to have better mechanisms and tools for working through all of that. And I love that you brought that up. I also went to a therapist during my second pregnancy, just again, control the things they can, which is a lot of mental yep. <laughs> uh, mechanisms, um, really makes a significant difference. I am so appreciative of you being on the podcast today, sharing so openly and so vulnerably, where can we learn more about you and what you have going on in your story? Oh, yes. And thank you again. And for everyone listening, I'm an open book. I am still figuring stuff out along the way and happy to just candidly share my journey during that, which speaking of, I primarily do that on my Instagram, which is jazzy things. So J-A-Z-Z-Y things. And also I had mentioned my good friend Kat and I started TTC Society. So that's a fantastic resource if you are looking for just support and resources and education during your TTC journey, wherever you are at in that phase. We are on Instagram, TTC Society, and that's also our podcast as well, um, if that would be of value in any way too. So great. And I will make sure that all of that is linked in the show notes and the uh, program that Jazzy mentioned that she's doing during her pregnancy is the one that Heather Osby and I created. It's called the Pregnant Athlete Training Program. I will also link that in the show notes if that's a resource that you feel would be helpful to you navigating your training during pregnancy. Jazzy, thank you for being here with us. And we look forward to talking to you when you are postpartum. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm a little over halfway right now as we speak. So awesome. very excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you are a postpartum athlete and you're really trying to figure out what next, what does my return to fitness look like? What do I do about my core, my pelvic floor? How do I get back into the movements I want to do in a way that I feel really confident about? I have you covered because I know exactly what it's like to be where you are as a coach, as an athlete, and as a mom. So I want you to download six exercises for the first six weeks postpartum. It's a free resource and it just goes over everything that I think is really important to take into consideration during those early weeks postpartum. Now, if you're ready to begin more of an exercise program, say you've been cleared by your doctor or midwife, I have a eight week postpartum athlete training program, which acts as the perfect entry back into fitness, into the gym, into the kind of movement that you want to do where it's still respecting the changes your body has gone through and how your baby was delivered, but it really helps connect your rehab into the kind of fitness that you want to do in a way that's relatable and fun and exactly what your body needs right now on behalf of your long-term function and performance.